Yeah, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. Now, what do I got for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about Russia launching some pretty powerful airstrikes on Ukrainian munitions depots, and we're going to talk about the massive explosion we saw. We're going to talk about the latest fightings from the latest Durham report. And then, and we'll probably lead with this one, we're going to talk about a very important event that just took place in the Russo-Ukrainian War. All that and more, coming up. Alrighty, let's get into the rapid-fire news. So... We have Russia focusing fire on Russian, not Russian, on Ukrainian air defenses. And we've been talking for the last few weeks about how Ukraine's air is open. Ever since we saw the report from the Pentagon, those leaked documents showing, well, stating that Ukraine had all but run out of air defense missiles. Uh, Well, actually verifying it because the report had come out about a week earlier that they were running low. And then when we got to there... We saw not that they were running low on ammunition for air defense missiles and for artillery. We found that they were just about out of air defense missiles and artillery. Now, that doesn't mean they have zero, but for all intents and purposes, the the air war was allowed to begin, which is why now you're seeing a much more beefed up presence of the Russian Air Force, and they're actively hunting down the remainder of Ukraine's air defense system. So even if even if they do get more ammunition, they won't be able to use them because there's no air defense systems from which you can fire the air defense missiles. And most notably, they've been targeting the American-supplied Patriot missile systems. And in this one video we see, uh, well, I say we as if I could show it to you, but there's this one video I saw where the missile battery, which is largely presumed to be a Patriot missile battery, fired off 30 missiles in two minutes and still got blown up at the very end. So either the missiles, either the Patriot system, which is that inaccurate and was that incapable of defeating an incoming missile, that's option A. Option B, there were a lot of missiles coming in and you couldn't stop them all. That's option B. That's plausible. Or option C, it was a hypersonic missile. And if it's hypersonic, it doesn't matter how many missiles you throw up, unless you literally black the blacken the sky with missiles, you're not going to hit that thing. It's just going to come out and it's going to do whatever it wants to you. There is currently no answer to a hypersonic missile other than the threat of responding with your own hypersonic missile. That, that That's it. It's like the early days of nuclear weapons where... The only thing you could say in response to someone telling you that they had nuclear weapons was to say, yeah, I have my own nuclear weapons and I can bring I can deliver them to your country, too, just like you can deliver them to mine. So how about we both just leave it alone? That's what we have with hypersonic missiles, albeit it's not you're not going to destroy a city with a single hypersonic unless it's armed with a nuclear weapon. But even in just a conventional sense, there's no way to stop it. It moves too fast. And because it's meant for shorter ranges, because when an ICBM, an intercontinental ballistic missile, enters the terminal phase, it too is a hypersonic missile. But for the 
for the purpose of this uh, chat, we're talking about the shorter range missiles, the, the ones that are fired from a shorter distance away and can still reach hypersonic speeds without needing to go through the whole massive arc where it goes up into space and then comes back down at hypersonic speeds. It's moving across at hypersonic speeds, low to the ground, and then it pops up for like a second on your radar because it avoided radar detection by flying low to the ground, and then boom, it, you're blown up. So I complete. I think that this was a hypersonic missile hitting this Patriot missile battery. But 30 missiles. And I, I guess, what could you expect it to do? Because a lot of these systems are automated. So if the if the defense system realizes it's it's just not hitting this target or it realizes that the target is moving so fast that it has to that the missile it just fired isn't going to reach it so it has to fire another one what we can see here is a very interesting way in which current air defense systems will respond when presented to a hypersonic missile this is one of the ways it can respond it can be overloaded with the information or well specifically the speed information of this missile because the, the distance because you have to think about it on the radar for these systems it's gonna the missile coming in is gonna appear in one place then you're gonna get another radar ping and it's gonna be another and so with a lot of these defenses you have rapid radar ping so you can get a clear and constant uh lock on to wherever this missile or the target in general is at any given time you can track it but with a hypersonic missile moving at thousands of feet per second. Even with those really fast rate, radar pings where you can keep track of a moving person in real time when they're running across the ground or a tank or a plane, with this missile moving as fast as it is, on the radar system, you have to imagine it, it appears as a dot in like one place and then all of a sudden the next time the radar ping hits it, it's in a completely different location. So now you have to fire another. So now the system registers that and says, "Okay, we have to fire another missile. Oh, we have to fire another missile. Oh, we have to fire another missile." And that's how you. Th I think we get this thirty missiles being fired in two minutes. This, this again, presumably this American Patriot missile system was overwhelmed. It was overwhelmed by the speed of the hypersonic missile. That's that's what I think happened. Because how else? How else do you get 30 missiles being fired in such a short period of time against, what, one target? What would make the computer on board do that when it usually doesn't do that unless there's a multitude of targets? So, again, there's also the possibility that there were just a lot of different targets coming in. But I, I think it was a hypersonic. And this is a perfect demonstration, if that was the case, it was hypersonic, it's a perfect demonstration of why modern air defense systems cannot deal with hypersonics. It, the speed of that missile just overloads the systems, and they, the only way they can cope with that is to fire more missiles, which just ends up with you wasting a whole lot of missiles just for your air defense system to get blown up anyway. So the lethality and the, how should I say, the the dominance of the hypersonic missile is now being put on full display. The preeminence of the hypersonic missile is being put on display. And it's likely to stay there for quite some time. It's going to take a new technology 
to stop this thing. There's no other way around it. Nothing we have today can stop a hypersonic missile. But we'll, we'll get more into Russia and Ukraine later on. We have Zelensky taking his world tour. He visited France. He visited the UK. He went to Saudi Arabia. And then he made it into Japan just in time for the G7 summit. Uh, and when he went to France, there, there were some media outlets calling him the, the traveling circus, <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny. Uh, a traveling circus, nonetheless, uh, they make money. And that's exactly what he did. He went around the world and he grabbed money everywhere he went especially when he made it to the G7 summit in Japan, where Biden agreed to give him another $375 million. And speaking of the G7 meeting in Japan, there was a G7 meeting in Japan, where it was more of the same line that we've grown accustomed to over the past year, almost year and a half. It, like it, It's really become the singular focus for all the countries involved here, to the point that they don't even talk about anything else it's russia bad more sanctions and more money and weapons for ukraine the oh and by the way china bad and that and that's it that they have no plan to deal with the BRICS massive expansion how they want to compete with that not not saying you need to go destroy the BRICS, but like you're an economic alliance what are you going to do about this what are you, you going to do about that? Are you going to compete with them? Are you going to open up your doors to allow more members? Are you going to, how are you going to cooperate to make yourself an appealing, you know, group for others to join now that you have some competition on the block? No talk about that. No talk about a potential BRICS currency, which is likely to be backed by gold. No talk about that. No talk about all these countries doing trade in local currencies. And how the G7 countries should adapt to that or what they should do in response to that. Should they do that with themselves and start trading with each other in local currencies? Or are they going to, like, what are they going to do? Are they going to, are they going to jump on board the BRICS currency if it comes out? Are they going to be cooperative with the BRICS or are they going to be antagonistic with the BRICS? No talk. And there's not even talk. We can assume what the answer that's going to be. And they're going to be antagonistic. They're going to oppose the rise of the multipolar world order. But the main issues concerning this group are just, I wouldn't even say glossed over. They're just not even talked about in favor of talking about Russia, Ukraine, more money, more sanctions, as if these were not failed policies. Russia's economy is currently set to grow. I brought this up last episode. It shrunk by 2% with the mother of all sanctions. Mother of all sanctions, everything we had to give, we gave, and the Russian economy shrunk by 2%. And now it's already recovering. It is, the, the estimation was that it was going to grow by like 0.6 or 0.8%. Now they're already revising that estimate up to like 1%, and we're not even halfway through the year. They might still watch that estimate go further up. We might see one and a half to two percent growth from the Russian economy this year. Which might which might mean Russia makes a full recovery from everything we had to throw. The a full recovery from the mother of all sanctions in uh, what two years? Because the the sanctions were placed on them pretty early on in 2022. So two years 
and a, you have a full recovery and you're back to economic growth. Healthy economic growth of that, two, maybe even 3%. Because Russia's been readjusting its trade partners so it doesn't have to deal with this anymore. So now that it's readjusting its trade with countries that were growing in size and growing in their economy, because when you look at all these charts, you see those um, those videos and those graphs of the largest economies projected by like 2050 or something. A lot of Europe just falls off the cliff. The United States is still there, which is predictable and true, mind you, although... I think that if we were to fully industrialize, we'd stick around at the number one spot, but that's just me. But all of Europe, they fall off. They fall off a cliff. Japan does fairly well, but they slide as well. Russia isn't focusing on these countries. Russia's reorganizing its trade away from these countries because these countries are the ones sanctioning them. The G7 represents all these economies, these top 10 economies, and yet, over, over time, our, the economies of the G7 are slated to fall off a cliff. They're going to be almost irrelevant when compared to the rising stars, which will mean the rising powers of this century. We're talking Nigeria. We're talking uh, I, Turkey, Iran, Brazil. We're talking Indonesia, India, who has already surpassed China in population. India is slated to become the largest economy in the world by the end of the century or sometime around there. Oh, Brazil. I mentioned Brazil, Mexico. No one's talking about Mexico. No, these countries are growing. Russia is about to annex Ukraine and complete its merger with Belarus. Not only is that going to mean a larger Russian population, I estimate that around 15 million people from Ukraine will stick around for Russia. I mean, 5 million of them are already living under Russian jurisdiction right now, about 3 million of which were refugees. The other living in parts of Ukraine that are now under Russian occupation. And then you have another 9.8 million from Belarus, just about 10 million. So Russia has a population of 145 million. 15 million from Ukraine, that's 160. 10 million from Belarus, that's 170. Now you're talking a Russian population that's roughly akin to what it was in World War I, which already puts them at uh, above double Germany's population. And all the populations of Europe are set to decline this century due to demographic issues. And we, I've already discussed the relative power of nations courtesy of demographics. If Russia's starting its population decline at 170 million people. Uh, they have a lot of room to work with. And that's before we get into the likely prospect that when this war is over, they're going to have a, a bump in their birth rates because countries that win wars tend to have a bump in the birth rates and they'll have peace they will have they will score such a mighty strategic victory over NATO by the end of this thing that NATO won't be able to touch them for perhaps a decade. Perhaps a decade. They'll have reintegrated the Ukraine, reintegrated Belarus. They'll have a land bridge to Transnistria. The only the only loose end that there will be is going to be Kaliningrad, 
and it, with the demographic declines of places like Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, who's to say that they don't eventually get integrated into Russia by way of demographics there, demographic pressures there as well. If the Russian minority becomes a, a slim majority because the, the local populations just fell off that much, who's to say that they don't get integrated into Russia as well? And that's assuming no war between Russia and NATO, which Russia would win. NATO has exhausted everything on Ukraine. We'd run out of ammo. And then the Russians would just have their way with us. They would take the Baltics and Finland, probably. So with without even firing a shot, Russia's looking at a major boost in land and population, which is going to mean a boost in their economy. Russia's already made their way back onto the top 10 list. So when you see Russia growing in its economy and hooking itself up to other growing economies and other growing populations, the Middle East, I'll have to do it, uh, an episode talking about the Middle East and what I see for the future of the world looking like, uh, courtesy of these demographic trends, uh, sort of an update to the things we talked about earlier on in the podcast history. I'll have to do an episode on that, but Russia's hooking itself up to the rising powers, which is going to mean that they're going to benefit from the rise of those countries and those countries' economies. And the G7 is doing nothing. The G7 isn't even talking economic cooperation between each other. They're not talking economic cooperation with Africa. They're talking about how Africa needs to sanction Russia or else they're going to get sanctioned. Nobody wants to hear that, and that's not conducive to economic growth. You can't complain about the growth of economic power from your competitors, your geostrategic rivals, Russia, China, if the only thing you have to offer is economic decline. I mean, I was just listening to a, a speech from Ursula von der Leyen where she's quoting the, what is it, the Rome Council or something like that, or the Rome Forum, and the paper that they published talking about we need an end to economic growth because climate change this is what this is what the G7 is talking about now at least in America we have Trump and the MAGA Republicans so we we have a pro growth we already have a pro growth faction in power in the United States that is ready to assume control of the country in the event that the other side goes off a cliff we already we we already have our failsafe. Say what you will about the MAGA Republicans. Say what you will about the Republicans in general. At the very least, they want your energy bills lower. At the very least, they don't see economic growth as some negative. But the rest of these countries in the G7, the rest of these countries in Europe, are all on board climate change and the need to stop economic growth, stop population growth. They're already in a population decline. They're already about to suffer massive population declines, which might just question the existence of certain countries. And well, it'll throw their existence into question when dealing with the rising populations of the Middle East. They want no population growth, no economic growth. They want sustainability. They want, you're not competing. You're not competing. You are literally laying out a future in which you get outproduced and outcompeted by everyone. So what exactly is the G7 for? What, what is it for? I don't get it. Like, uh, 
sure it was it was a cool club to be a part of back in the day back in the gap when they were the gap was so much bigger it was not as if china wasn't the second largest economy in the world for quite some time but um but what are they doing what is what is the purpose of this summit if you're going to talk about nothing of value and at a time when you have some competition on the block the brics is uh, it is a figure being put out there is that the brics is going to expand by 81 members i don't know about 81 i don't know about 81 i did it i did a segment talking about the expansion of the brics it's looking more around the 30 figure but I'll, even with 30 formal not even formal applications, but like formal joinings plus applications plus, you know, uh, observers. You're still looking at a lot of countries around the world. I wouldn't be surprised if 81 countries did decide to cooperate with the BRICS without actually joining the BRICS. And like 30 of those being actual applicants to the BRICS. Yeah. That, that's some competition. There's only, like, what, 196 or four countries on the planet? So literally half the planet in the terms of just the number of countries and way more than half the planet in terms of population because you're talking Africa, India, and China. That's half right there. And Latin America, you're talking a lot of people, a lot of countries coming together to hear what the BRICS countries have to say. To hear what their agenda is, to see what they are offering, and all the G7 can do is talk about how they're going to sanction Russia, which is already a failed policy. They're going to talk about how much they don't like Russia and how Russia's evil, as if the the rest of the world has already demonstrated they don't care. I don't get what the purpose of this institution is. I'm going to move on from that. I've I've rambled on enough, but we have Biden canceling the Quad meeting. That's the meeting between America, India, Japan, and Australia, this anti-China coalition is what it was meant to be. With him canceling, it's presumed that he canceled this because he had to hash out a debt ceiling agreement with the Republicans. He's currently preoccupied with that. So I guess I can give him props for understanding that things in America are more important than what's happening over there. But yeah, yeah. I guess we see how important <laughs> the China war actually is. The domestic politics are still superseding, even among the China hawks, the domestic politics in the United States still supersedes China and the anti-China coalition. And to be fair, it, it was probably the right thing to do anyway. I like, I don't see this coalition going that far. I don't see the coalition going that far. Now, granted, India was already India already has a defense alliance with Japan. And while Biden went back home, India's uh, Narendra Modi actually visited Australia seeking security ties. So he uh, just like I talked about when we back when I talked more about the Quad and the anti-China coalition, when I was talking about the uh, the real Cold War between India and China which I'll sort of downgrade that now and say it's going to be more of a great power competition rather than a Cold War. I, th I think Cold War is a bit of an extreme term that won't quite capture what's going to go on between India and China. It'll, it'll probably be called one, but it'll be less intense than that. Is what it, That's what it's looking like. Uh, in light of what's happening now, 
with India and China being on the same page and bringing about the multipolar world order, I think that that assessment needs some rearranging. It, it needs to be reassessed. I do not think there's going to be a cold war between China and India, but I believe there will be great power competition, primarily for influence in the places that I specified. It's just not going to be as intense as, oh, we're going to fight a proxy war against one another. I don't, I don't think India and China are going to get to that point, but they will be in competition for influence, primarily economic influence in Southeast Asia, the Middle East, and Central Asia. Be why? Because they, they're both neighbors to all those places, and all those places matter immensely to China and India. But China and India are two titans living next door to one another, sharing interests in all the same regions. So there's room for cooperation. But at the same time, there's also lots of room for conflict. And while I don't think that they'll be fighting proxy wars against one another, I do see them competing for influence. Now, right now, you see India focusing primarily on the security side of things, military and security agreements. They have one with Vietnam. They have one with, well, excuse me, Australia and Japan. Ten-year defense pact. I believe it's down nine to eight years right now. They're building defense pacts, whereas China is building economic agreements. They're expanding economically. India is expanding through security. But with India's economy growing and set to become the world's largest at some point in time down the line, it's almost inevitability that their influence expands outside the reach of security arrangements and moves into the realm of economics. And then you'll have, then you'll have the competition of great powers between India and China. That, that's what I think is going to go down here. But even before the Quad, I said, look, India has alliances with these countries already. The Quad is sort of a formalization and an interjection of America into what's already happening. And with America going home to deal with the debt crisis, you can see exactly what it was that I was talking about. India has a defense pact with Japan. That's locked down. And then the president of India goes to Australia as Biden flakes. And he goes to Australia talking about, the, well, seeking to, quote, take our ties to the next level, end quote. And he says this primarily to tackle issues ranging from climate change, natural disasters, terrorism, and security of the sea lanes. I wonder who that last one could be focused on. Now, granted, it could be focused on China or America at this point. But yeah, India is already doing this of their own accord. Like We did not make this happen. We just sort of formalized it into one big thing. But that's a very interesting dynamic going on in the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, and I guess a glimpse into the multipolar world, countries handling their own business. We have the second round of Turkey's elections happening this week, I believe on Sunday. So we will see by the time we do next week's episode, who will the president be in Turkey? We have the president of the Democratic Republic of Congo, Felix uh, Chisekedi. There we go. Felix Shisekedi, currently set to visit China this week for what is largely speculated to be trade-related agreements, many trade-related agreements that they expect will be signed between these two leaders, uh, which will be a big boost for the Democratic Republic of Congo. But as a proxy, it'll be a big boost to the East African economic community, which is supposed to become a federation at some point in the future. But a major boost for Congo means a major boost 
for the East African community. Uh, so just uh, throw that in there. You have the U.S. approaching its debt ceiling, and I expect that the MAGA Republicans will strike again, uh, as they usually do when things get down to the wire, and they have leverage to use. I expect they'll, unless McCarthy hashes out a deal with Biden, I expect that the MAGA Republicans are going to essentially strong arm and strong arm, manipulate, blackmail, whatever you want to call it. They're they're going to hold hot. They're going to hold the country hostage in exchange for spending limits, which is exactly what we need. Uh, it's exactly what we need. And on the point of the, on the point of the debt ceiling, I think what we have is yet another example of the divide between the empire, the U.S. alliance system, and the United States itself. Because the people in favor of the United States want spending limits. The people in favor of the U.S. alliance system want to be able to expand the debt endlessly. But what do you, why? Why do you need to expand the debt? Because we have to spend the money. Well, what are you spending the money on? War. Expansion. Overseas. Doing all these weird things that we don't need to be doing. Laundering money. We need to spend it. Laundering it through these countries. But if you have spending limits, then you you don't need to expand the budget. You don't need to expand the debt limit anymore. You don't need to do that. And if you put spending limits and you stop expanding the debt ceiling, if you actually get your spending under control, you don't you stop inflation as well. So expanding the debt limit the debt ceiling means expanding inflation and more funding for war. Caps and limits on the debt ceiling, it will raising it in exchange for spending limits means stopping inflation if you can get the government to balance its budget and an end to the wars. You, you just can't fund them anymore. So, very interesting. I see the divide there once again, and uh, we will see who stands on which side of the aisle when it comes time to hash out this agreement. We'll see what the terms of that agreement is. Again, I expect something's going to happen. I expect it to be resolved. I don't think we're going to default. I don't think, but we'll talk about that when it gets resolved. But in other news, we have German Chancellor Olaf Scholz saying he'd prefer Biden to Trump, saying, quote, I think the current president is better, so I want him to be reelected, end quote. He continues by saying, quote, Biden's many years of public service mean he knows exactly what you have to do to prevent the world from going to war, end quote. Now, ignoring the obvious, which is that he's wrong, uh, especially on that last point, preventing the world from going to war, and my case in point being the current situation in Ukraine, and probably Taiwan. Why is a foreign leader involving himself in our politics? Who our president is, is none of his business. And who he prefers is irrelevant. Now, if, and here's the, the, the thing that sort of annoys me watching contemporary politics, which is the double standard. Because had Putin or Xi said what Schultz just said, that they would prefer insert president here because they think that insert president here was better, 
we'd be up in arms about how Russia and China were interfering in our elections and our electoral process and how they should butt out. But because Germany is an ally, they get a pass for sticking their nose in our business and weighing in on our affairs. And the, the French and the British are as, just as guilty of this as the Germans are. And, oh, oh boy, I tell you, I can't wait for this empire to end so that America can finally get its head screwed on right and see things for what they are. I wonder what it will be like. I wonder what, what I, I really do wonder. Because it's like this is something I... I I shouldn't say fantasize about, but something I really do want to see. But it'll be so different from what we have today. And it's it sort of leaves you wondering what exactly would it look like? What issues would we be talking about? Hopefully something that concerns America and not something that we pretend concerns America. But it'll be it'll be very interesting. But that's all for the I, I guess not so rapid fire news. And we'll get into <laughs> We'll get into actually uh, when uh, before I move on, there was a, a very important bit of information that came out during the G7 meeting in Japan. While all those world leaders were, uh, I'll say, self-congratulating each other for doing nothing and congratulating Zelensky for staying in the war and giving him all this applause and all this praise and all this money and all these weapons, a very interesting bit of information came in from the front. Bakhmut has fallen. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Alrighty, now, let's get into the meat of this episode, and we'll start today's episode talking about, you guessed it, the fall of Bakhmut. Last week, this massive event transpired where Russia, after a year of fighting has now completely captured the city of Bakhmut, or as it is now being called by its Russian name, Artyomovsk, which is what, again, the Russians have been calling it the entire time, but uh, I will continue to refer to it as Bakhmut because uh, it's a bit late in the game to be changing the name. I'll, I'll deal with the name changes after the war is over. Uh, yeah, they have captured Bakhmut. After all this time, after all these months of grinding and grinding and grinding, and it was only back in December, only back in December, that they had committed to the, the meat grinder approach to Bakhmut. Whereas before they were trying to make gains, and then they switched off to just grinding the Ukrainians down, and they ended up making more gains that way than they had just trying to push and push Ukraine out. So now they have the city. After a year of fighting, they've taken this city, which is an effort which was largely, though not exclusively, carried out by the Wagner Group, uh, the Wagner Group. Grigory Prigozhin, the head of the group, claims that Wagner did, he claims they did it all by themselves, but yeah, <laughs> it's, it's clear that they received a great deal of support from the mainline Russian army, namely in terms of fire support and artillery. But nonetheless, they did do a lot of the work. And so they do deserve a disproportionate amount of the praise for taking Bakhmut. This was their victory. The Battle of Bakhmut, the longest, and as of now, unless something new happens, the most consequential battle of the war has finally 
concluded. And it's it's almost unreal being at this moment in time. It feels as though the war within the war has ended. If you if you understand what I mean when I say this, it feels as though we've reached the end of the war, even though the war is clearly not over. And I s- suppose that that's, that, that's what it, it feels like when you pass uh, a dramatic turning point in a major prolonged event. We have now made it past the turning point. And so now all that talk that President Zelensky of Ukraine did when he came to America and gave his speech in Congress, all of that Bakhmut still stands. I visited the front in Bakhmut where the Russians were beating us savagely, but we held on. And just like I said it would, all of that has now come back to bite him because now Bakhmut has fallen. And, and I said it at the time. I said, why would you stake your speech on this one city? Why not Kiev? Well, why not Kiev? At least, at least you could run off the, the pretend that you drove the Russians off from Kiev. They tried to take us in a day, but we didn't allow it. And now we have men dying to hold on to Bakhmut. And it is unsure if we can take, if we can keep it, which is why we need everything you have to give. Uh, that would have been a far better pitch. I still would have, wouldn't have liked it, but hey, you would have gotten the bleeding hearts. Why would you stake the legitimacy of your war effort on you holding Bakhmut? And you brought this flag, s- supposedly signed by all these soldiers who were in Bakhmut, and you gave it to Nancy Pelosi and Kamala Harris, and now Bakhmut has fallen. Like we knew it was going to at some point. We knew that this was going to happen. They tried their damnedest to hold on to it. Can't You can't take that away from them. But when their artillery situation was always worse than the Russians, when their manpower situation and their casualty figures were always worse than the Russians, and the Russians then decided that they were just going to sit there and grind you down deliberately because you decided you were going to hold on to this city, and they're going to use your unwillingness to give it up as a perfect excuse and as a perfect opportunity to just grind away at your forces and everything that you have. Because it's not just the men who died, it's the equipment that gets destroyed, the money that gets spent. They were played. It's, it, And now the battle is over. The battle is over. Oh, oh my goodness. Tens of thousands dead. Tens of thousands wounded. And for what? And for what? Like, I get that Bakhmut is a major logistics hub. It's a major... uh, Yeah, yeah, it's a major logistics hub and a, a major point for the defense line in the Donbass. But surely there's other places you could dug you could dig into that you didn't have to sacrifice such a massive portion of your force on this one city. And it's not even like Bakhmut is this major city. They they keep calling it the Stalingrad of Ukraine. It's not it's nowhere near Stalingrad in terms of size. It's a relatively modest city. Why would you stake the future of your country on this? And it just puzzled me. 
And, and then you get articles coming talking about how, oh, Bakhmut isn't that important. Why is Russia still fixated on this? The Russians weren't fixated on this. The Wagner Group was, and the Ukrainians were. And the Russians took advantage of both of them and then sat there and grinded away at the Ukrainians because they knew that the Ukrainians would not deny battle in Bakhmut. They would not give it up. So that they knew that every time that they blew apart a, a battalion or a division, the Ukrainians would cycle them out and put new troops in, and then it would just be rinse and repeat. It, it, the, it's over now, so we can sort of get our bearings about what, what has just transpired here. Although people are going to be talking about this battle for decades. People are going to be talking about this battle for decades, especially when dealing with European history. This is going in the history books, and people will ask why. And I don't think I have an answer. There are very few people who do. And their answers might st still might not cut it. Because especially when you look at the numbers. Because right now, there are estimates floating around which put the number of casualties that Ukraine suffered in fighting for this city. And it's anywhere between 60 to 160,000 casualties. Now, from what we... From what we can see about Ukraine's casualties, it's a, a lot of those are fatalities, so, uh, around 40 to 50% from the numbers that we've been looking at on this podcast throughout the war. So 60 to 160,000 casualties, that means 30 to 80,000 dead and wounded. 30,000 dead, 30,000 wounded. To 80,000 dead and 80,000 wounded. For this one city. Now, mind you, Ukraine's casualty figure throughout the entirety of the war is like 700 to 750,000, according to Douglas McGregor. No. According to Douglas McGregor, he says that there are about 350,000 dead and another 350 to 400,000 wounded. Now, me personally, I find Douglas McGregor's estimates always a bit high. Uh, back in January, he said that Ukrainians were up to 200,000 uh, dead. And I'm like, I don't know. Uh, that, that seems a bit high for me, especially when it was just la that November prior that they had reached the 100,000 dead mark. It was over 100,000, but presumably not approaching 200,000. It was over 100,000, but not, oh, they're about to hit 200,000. That's what's, that's what it seemed like at the time, especially when you get that uh, Zeluzhny talking about, oh, he has 190,000 combat-ready troops, which would mean the, a loss of 160,000 men. And we extrapolated that and ran those numbers forward for a while. Then we had to accept that the Ukrainians are probably just pulling men out the reserves faster and faster, and that's the reality, because you have these men being taken off the street by, by these roving bands, uh, of these street gangs of military uh, impressors. You know, like you, they called it impressment back in the day, where they would literally kidnap you from whatever ship you were on or from whatever town you were in, and they would put you into military service. That's impressment. They literally have gangs of impressment, of impressment tiers. 
in Ukrainian cities, grabbing young men, fighting age men off the street, throwing them into a truck, driving them off to some undisclosed location where they are then given a gun, a week or two of training if they're lucky, and then they're sent off to the front. And if that is the standard by which you're training the military, it doesn't matter how many, it doesn't matter how many combat capable troops you've lost. Uh, you're going to increase your casualty rate because you're sending men who do not know how to fight the war into the war. But shoot, you can mitigate losses that way really fast. You're just going to lose more men in the process. And we had to come to terms with that back in like February. Because had they had they only been using the combat capable troops that they had, they would they wouldn't they'd almost be out of an army by now. But it is clear that the Ukrainian army is still there. So what is true that they've lost half their army or that they are actively reinforcing them with really, really untrained troops. And unfortunately, the second is true. They are throwing men with zero combat experience and truth be told, zero training. A, a few days of training with a gun where you get four and then you get sent off to the front with like four to eight bullets in some cases that's an extreme case but the ukrainians are decently armed in terms of rifle and small arms ammunition that much they aren't having to worry about for now but i mean my goodness uh, like a hundred sixty to all a hundred and sixty thousand casualties. So we can just say a hundred thousand, just about maybe eighty thousand. Douglas McGregor puts the total casualties at seven hundred to seven hundred fifty thousand. I personally believe that they just crossed the two hundred thousand mark back in like April. Yeah, I think that that's a fair estimate when you see the losses and the, the falling off of their ability to fight back. So I think it'd be fair to put the casualties at somewhere coming up to 250,000 right now in total, not, not a, uh, well for dead for dead. There we go. For dead. Cause a hundred thousand dead in November, 200,000 dead April. And then we find out they have no ammunition for the artillery and the Russians are just slamming them with artillery. So I, and now that they have no air defense, it's expected that their casualties are going to go up. I think that we're looking at around 250,000 dead at max, 200 to 250,000 dead, and perhaps another 200 to 300,000 wounded. So me personally, I put the casualties at around 600,000, 500 to 600,000 casualties sort of total he puts it 700 to a quarter million and i think that's a bit much granted granted uh, it's likely that i'm gonna have to revise my estimates up to again which is usually the case with this revise revising my estimates up for their casualties and revising my estimates down for the things working in their favor uh, it's likely that I'm going to have to do that. I'll just preface that. That's the, been the trend throughout this entire war. I don't expect that that trend's going to change, but for the time being, I'm going to stick to, I'm going to, I'm going to try to give the Ukrainians the benefit of the doubt because a quarter million is crazy. 
a quarter million is absolutely ridiculous. It's not unbelievable. I think that they will approach the one million mark by the end of the war. But a quarter million right now, that's that's a bit much for me. But I have routinely been wrong about Ukraine's casualties in that I'm underestimating them. I've routinely underestimated Ukraine's casualties. And I constantly have to revise up. So I'll just preface that. I'll put I'll put his numbers out there. I think that those are a bit much. But given that I always have to revise my estimates up when it comes to their casualties, I may as well put his numbers up there so that you get an idea of what we're going to be talking about later on when I have to revise upwards. But if his numbers are true, if his numbers are true for the total casualties in Bakhmut, uh, not in Bakhmut, in the war as a, as a whole, and we go with the higher end losses in Bakhmut, then that would mean 20% of Ukraine's total losses, and we're talking deaths and get people getting wounded, total casualties, 20% came from Bakhmut alone. That's an insane number. That's an absolutely insane number. For 20% to die in one place for this entire war. Because it, it, it's not like Bachman has been the only place seeing the fighting. They, there's been fighting all, all around the world. Uh, all around the world. <laughs> all around the country. Well, uh, you know, the, the parts of the front lines. On, you had the, the Kherson Offensive, which saw a massive spike in casualties from the Ukrainians. The Russians fell back. The Kharkiv Offensive, the Russians fell back, and the Ukrainians had a massive spike. And then you have the grind. You have Mariupol. Mariupol, the Great Siege. You have all these other events in the war. But 20% for Bakhmut alone. That's a lot for one battle. Even though the battle went on for about a year, even though we saw the numbers, well, it was really hard to get a read on the numbers of people involved in this combat. But my goodness. My goodness. Now, if we go with my numbers, where we lowball Ukraine's losses to 500,000, to 600,000, and then we go with the, the lower end estimate of 60,000 casualties. That's still over 10%. Like, uh, there's... I don't know how we how you get around that. There, That's still 10% plus, because 60,000 is more than 10% of 500,000. So, whatever you go with the casualties, whatever casualty figure you go with... If you're going with mine or McGregor's, or unless you're going with something lower, if you're if you're going with my gadgets figures, that's still ten percent plus. If you're going with McGregor's figures, and you and you go with the higher end estimates of this, uh, that's that's twenty percent. I think that's an extreme, but it, it just might be the case. Like this is it's absolutely ridiculous how many people the Ukraine lost in this battle, and I've asked the question. A lot of people have asked the question, why Bakhmut? Why would you? And I'm still asking the question because I still don't get it. I still don't see why they would stake everything on Bakhmut. And what have they gotten in exchange for this? What did they gain? What uh, What did they get? We know what the Russians got. The Russians got uh, 60 to 100,000 Ukrainian casualties. 
and all they had to do was focus fire on one spot. And then they still took the city when their objective was just to destroy the Ukrainian army there. They, they could have had the encirclement and they chose not to take it so that they could just sit there and just dog on the Ukrainian troops in the pocket. The pocket being Bakhmut. So what did the Ukrainians get? We know what the Russians got. What did the Ukrainians get? They, they've got nothing. They've got nothing. They got sympathy points. They got money, which went down the drain, fighting in Bakhmut and, and the war in general. They got weapons, which went, were destroyed because they sent them into Bakhmut, and then they got destroyed by the Russians and the Russian artillery. The Ukrainians have lost weapons at such an astonishing rate that they have nothing left. I, I say nothing. That, that, that too is an exaggeration. They obviously have something. Otherwise, the Russians would just walk all over them. But when you compare what they're working with right now, the numbers that they're working with right now, to what they've been given over the course of this, they have nothing. They have nothing. It's... It's it's ridiculous. And I am still bewildered. Like, it doesn't feel real to be in the, at this point, to, be, to tell you the truth. It does not feel real. That after all this time, the, the battle is finally over. And now we sit here and we reflect just a little bit on the battle. The war within the war has ended. And one side got literally nothing out of it. And that one side was the most adamant on staying in Bakhmut? What was the purpose? What was, was the point just to get more of your own men killed? I really don't understand it. I, I, I really don't. And I know I keep harping on that point, but I'm tell, I am telling you, people are going to be asking this question for decades. Why Bakhmut? Why did they stake everything? Why did they bet the family farm on this one town? Sure, it had some strategic importance, but at a certain point, why did you not let it go? Why did you not pull back? Why did you keep cycling men, more and more and more men into this pocket when you knew it was going to happen to them? At, at one point, we were getting reports that the, the, the life expectancy for people sent into Bakhmut, the, the fresh meat being sent into the meat grinder, we were being told the life expectancy was four hours. Why would you send your men into an environment like that? When you know the enemy has complete control over that battle space. Not enough control to push you out, but enough control to make sure that anybody you send in there dies in a timely manner. Why did they not pull out? Why did they stay? Why did they let so many of their men get just slaughtered like lambs? It's insane. The numbers that we're going to be dealing with when we finally get a good tally of what happened here. It. My goodness, my good. I'll. I'm gonna. I'm gonna leave the numbers at that. But. My God. My God, like, uh, 
this this has been one hell of a battle. This has been one hell of a battle. And depending on where the numbers stack up, and I'm just gonna run with eighty to a hundred thousand losses for the the Ukrainians, which even on my low end estimate of how much how many people I think they've lost in total throughout the war, that's still twenty thousand. That's still twenty percent basically. That's still twenty percent because my low end estimate, and which I'm I'm probably gonna have to revise up. I'm I'm reminding you right now. I'm I'm probably gonna have to revise my estimate upwards. But we lowball for the sake of you know, not jumping the gun here on the, the podcast. I think they've lost half a million to maybe six hundred thousand in total, dead and wounded. And I think that they lost a hundred thousand in Bakhmut, eighty to one hundred thousand. That's 20%. That's 18 to 20%, whichever one you go with. That's an absolutely insane number. I'm interested to see what the final tally will be. But it's it's unreal. I'll, I'll just say that. The battle lost, lasted a very, very long time. Lots of artillery, disproportionate amounts of artillery, in fact, were used in this battle. And in the last two months... The Ukrainian side has just all but lost the ability to effectively fight back. Again, look at their ammunition situation. They're putting up 1,000 shells a day. They have 10,000 shells in storage at any given moment in time. And we don't even know if they have that much anymore. Not with the Russian strikes that they've been carrying out. And we'll talk about that in a minute. I've begun to compare the situation in Ukraine to someone trying to fill a bucket with water when the bucket has a hole in it. So you can picture that in your mind. Like no matter how fast you fill the bucket up with water, it will still drain out until there's nothing left. If you want to keep the bucket full, you have to continually pour water into it at roughly the same pace that the water falls out. If you pour water into the bucket any slower, then the water will slowly be emptied out until the only water in the bucket is the water that just left your facet and hasn't had time to leave the bucket yet. And that's what the Ukrainians are. They're, they're the water that's spread out over the bottom that hasn't found its way out yet. That's the, that's the Ukrainian ammunition situation in a nutshell. They have 10,000 shells in store. They're putting up 1,000 shells a day. It might even be less than that. We don't know. I didn't think that they'd get to this point. To tell you the truth, I thought we were—we were—I thought we were still at the five to eight thousand a day. That—that's where I thought we were, just in March. And then in April, it's like, oh, it's—it's it's down to this much. I'm like, okay, well, you know, I think, I think we're still here. You know, I think we're still at this point, but it's possible that they're not at five to eight thousand, but they're at, you know three to five thousand. You know, I think. I think that they're, they're there. And then it's, oh, well, it they, they, this report says they're down to 3,000 a day. Well, but I I think that they're still at five to 8,000. But here's this number. And then we get the Pentagon report. They're down to 1,000 a day. They have, ten, they have less than 10,000 shells in store. And it's like, okay. I didn't think they get to this point. So it's possible that rock bottom is even lower than what I think. They could be they could be putting up uh, 500 shells a day, and they have less than 5,000 in stock now. 
They, they could be at that point. I, I really don't know. I don't know what rock bottom is for the Ukrainians right now. But they're reaching it. It's like water going into a bucket that has a hole in it. And they've reached the point where the only water in this bucket, the water coming in is at a trickle. And the only water in the bucket is just a little, the little plane of water, a little, little slab of water along the bottom that just hasn't emptied out of the bucket yet. But we know that it will. It's, it's, ugh. It's 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 really bad because the, the only thing the Ukrainians have today is not what we gave them two weeks ago, but what we gave them yesterday. And tomorrow, the only thing they'll have is not what we gave them yesterday, but what we gave them today. And with the Ukrainians low on ammunition of all kinds, from artillery shells to tank shells to air defense missiles, the path west might just be opening up for the Russian army. Now, they still have the Kalyanivka line, if they wanted. And that is the line of cities and ur the urban terrain that roughly stretches almost contiguously along the Kalyanivka River, which is just, it's not that far west of Bakhmut. It, it's really not. And it comes all the way down to Konstantinivka from uh, Kalyanivka. North-south axis, you have the river to defend yourself with. You have the urban environment. It's as good of a defensive line as you're going to get if you want it, but that would require you to consolidate your troops behind that line before the Russians get there. Because the Ukrainian forces, if they're not behind the line by the time the Russians come, the Russians are just going to break across the line almost unopposed at certain points, and then that would compromise the integrity of the defensive line. And I, I bring up Kalyanivka, because once you go farther west in Ukraine, farther west of the Kalyanivka River, you start to lose all of the defensive advantages from the terrain that you have in eastern Ukraine. The, the hills and the rough terrain fade away into the flat, wide open steppes of Ukraine. Well, not, not quite steppes, but the plains. The rough terrain goes away. The forests start to diminish and shrink in their size and number. The rivers stop flowing north on a north-south axis, and they start flowing on an east-west axis, which isn't going to help you when your enemy is coming at you from the east. Moving west, a, a river flowing along, flowing in that axis isn't going to help you. It, it, that's not a barrier for you. That, that just funnels you into one place and then they can bomb you. The, the urban environment goes away as well. Because once you go past Kalyanivka and that line of cities, the cities become really, really sparse and really spread out until you get to the Dnieper. And at that point, you've seeded half of Ukraine. So it's it's really bad. They have that 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 Kalyanivka line will be the last defensive line, an effective defensive line that can make use of the terrain that you're going to get until you get to the deeper. Because from that point onwards, you're dealing with flat terrain, no cities, no forests, no hills and no rivers. 
And that spells disaster for Ukraine. Now, with such a catastrophic defeat in Bakhmut, which again could have been worse had Russia gone for the encirclement rather than for a cauldron, immediately after it became uh, news that the city had fallen, the narrative pivoted uh, like on, on a dime. It pivoted from Ukrainian triumphalism. Oh, we just give them F-16s. Oh, we gave them these these storm shadow missiles. And they're, now they're going to turn the tide of the war. Oh, oh the Ukraine spring offensive. It's, it's coming. It's coming. The Ukraine counteroffensive. It's, it's coming. It's coming. And now it's shifted immediately away from that to China's the real enemy. Which tells you everything you need to know about China being the real enemy of the United States. If they're just immediately substitutable for Ukraine and Russia, you can just substitute Russia for China to justify more military activity. Well, is China really a threat to the United States? Or is it just more propaganda from the people who get us into wars all the time? Uh, continual food for thought. Uh, but... Yeah, that, that it, immediate, it happened immediately. Like, And you have Rishi Sunak and Ursula von der Leyen talking about de-risking. That's the new, that's the new word now. You're going to hear that a lot. De-risking economies from China. Uh, moving away from decoupling, because decoupling is a bit unrealistic for, I'd say, most countries. I, I do say most countries. It's possible for the United States, similar due to geographic and, you know, resource reasons we have everything we need here we don't need to do trade with china if if and this is the the precondition we were to reindustrialize we would not need to do trade with china but i'm in favor of doing trade with china it just you need protectionist barriers like a tariff you need to work out deals that preferably deals that involve them purchasing our agricultural produce so that our farmers are not hurt by tariffs and tariff wars. Because that's something that happens when you impose tariffs. Because farmers have to export. When you're when you're an agrar a major agrarian producer, your farmers have to export. And if you're getting slapped with tariffs, that hurts the farmers. So while the United States could, uh, if it reindustrialized, walk away from trade with China and actually decouple, very few countries can actually do that. So at the very least, we see an admission from the EU leader and the EU leader of the UK, which is a bit strange considering the UK is uh, supposedly left the EU, but they're both talking about de-risking now their economies from China. Sunak in particular says that the U uh, he says, and this is the prime minister of the UK, Rishi Sunak, he says China poses a systemic threat to the world order and is, quote, the only country with both the means and the intent to reshape the world order, end quote. So you have both them on the same page here, and that's largely representative of where the European political establishment is. The American political establishment is uh, too busy being put under siege by the populists in America to really focus on anything other than Russia, Ukraine, and occasionally China, Taiwan. Although you still have the China derangement syndrome, uh, taking storm, uh, I say taking storm, taking our politics by storm, because it's taking root 
in the minds of everyone in Washington that the second we lose in Ukraine, although they don't want to admit that we're going to lose in Ukraine, second we second we lose in Ukraine, it's it's Taiwan time. It's Taiwan time. We have to be all in on Taiwan, and then we're going to lose there too. Now, the last thing that they're going to admit is that they're going to lose in Taiwan. But we're going to lose in Taiwan. I'll be the first one to tell you. Uh, I've been the first to tell you for quite some time. We're going to lose that war. But it's very interesting to see how quickly the narrative has shifted away from Ukraine to China. Like, it was so fast. It happened in less than 24 hours. Like, and they really don't want to talk about Bakhmut. Like, they already didn't want to talk about Bakhmut before. Like, when, towards the end of last summer, when we started talking about Bakhmut, because uh, it started coming up to the the forefront, it was this major battle. I noticed they didn't want to talk about it. If you weren't listening to people on the YouTube side of things, people who do news, independent news coverage, you at that point you wouldn't even heard the word Bakhmut. Now the news, the mainstream has come around to this Bakhmut now, and then they try to dismiss it. Oh, it's it's major point that the Ukrainians are going to defend to the last man. Then the next day, it's oh, it's not that important. Why is Russia so hyper fixated on it? Then it's oh, Bakhmut. If Bakhmut falls, it's the end. And then it's Russia so silly for sending in so many men just to get slaughtered in Bakhmut. They fall right into Ukraine's trap. They did. They didn't know what narrative they wanted to run with on that one. But they came around to talking about Bakhmut, and now they don't want to talk about Bakhmut. They don't. Zelensky staked his entire legitimacy on the defense of Bakhmut, and now it's gone, and they don't want to talk about it. As a matter of fact, some people are in denial that it has even fallen, Zelensky being one of them. Because when it first happened, he said that it's likely that Bakhmut is no longer under Ukrainian control. Then the next day, he says... Oh, there's still some fighting going on around Bakhmut. And it's just a complete reverse from what he just said. Now, you have other people saying, oh, it, it hasn't fallen. You have uh, Sersky. You have Sersky saying that there is still combat actions taking place in a, a small sliver of Bakhmut. But hey, we still have it. We still have it. And Zeluzhny has taken a, a leave of absence, an unofficial one. And at this point, there's just a whole bunch of rumors swirling around about where he is, what he's doing. May, has he had a talk with Lloyd Austin or has he not? Was he on the phone call or was he not? Is he in good health or was he badly injured by a, a Russian missile? And Is he in critical condition? Is Sersky in critical condition as well? Because There's also rumors that he's injured. Very, And the Duran points out that it's highly convenient that they're both nowhere to be found. When this counteroffensive is supposed to begin any moment now, it's as if they want no part in what they know is going to be a failure. And of course, Zelensky was out of the country the entire time too. When this, uh, when this major explosion happened, and we'll, we're going to talk about the strike that Russia conducted on the munitions depot because it was a really big strike. But the narrative is now gone into full damage control mode. They don't want to talk about Ukraine. They don't want to talk about Bakhmut. They don't want They don't want to talk about the Russians taking Bakhmut. They, they, they want to talk about F-16s. They're on the way. It just, it, it's on the way. Oh, the, oh, the debt ceiling. Oh, China. It's, it's immediate deflection and damage control. While they try to piece together a, a narrative, a, a script, if you will, for what really happened in Bakhmut. But 
it's it, it, it's a mess. It's a mess. Uh, and it's a mess that's going to be made worse for them when the war is over and they have to come clean that they were lying the entire time. But for now, we get to watch as what we have been talking about comes to pass. And this immense battle comes to a close, this war within a war. But within the war within a war, well, not the war within the war, but in the war, you know, the, the, the wider war outside of Bakhmut, you have our next topic, which is Russia and this massive strike that they did on a Ukrainian munitions depot. So you have these uh, a couple cities, uh, Pavlograd and Khmelnytsky. These were the two major ones that we saw. Um, there was a strike. We believe it was a hypersonic, another hypersonic. But there were major strikes on these the munitions depots in these two towns. And especially the one that hit Khmelnytsky, it, when these munitions got hit, when these munitions depots got hit, it looked as if someone set off a mini nuke from the fallout games in the middle of the city. The blast, uh, the blast itself, the explosion uh, climbed high into the sky. Uh, but the blast itself did not seem as powerful as the, the explosion we saw in Beirut a few years back. If you remember that one, where it was, it was insane. The the force behind that one, it took out windows from miles away. But this blast was still a pretty powerful one. Now, uh, it, oh my goodness, what? <laughs> uh, oh, I lost track of where I was in my notes. That that's why I'm floundering here. There we go. There we go. There we go. There we go. The, the blast, while it wasn't quite as powerful as what happened in Beirut, it was still powerful enough to literally blacken the sky momentarily for those who were close enough to the epicenter of the explosion. Now, obviously, not close enough to get hit by it. Otherwise, you know, we wouldn't have seen the video. But people who were relatively closer to the explosion, when the explosion goes off and you see it on the cameras, the sky goes black from the explosion, and then it comes back to the light blue because it happened during the daytime it went from being it went from day to night and then back to day that's how powerful this explosion was but it's not necessarily the explosions themselves that are that matter here it's what got hit that's the important bit it's what got hit and yeah it's it's ammunition but in the context of ukraine's current ammunition situation that's terrible they cannot afford this they cannot afford this. Like, they, you have, uh, what, 10,000 rounds of ammunition at any given moment? You're putting up 1,000 rounds a day? And now your, your munitions depot is getting hit by hypersonic missiles? That does not spell victory. And again, this is probably ma being made possible by the lack of Ukraine's air defense, and we're just seeing we're just seeing the effects of that deterioration. Like they're being hit more and more from the sky now in places that hurt more than they were before. Uh, Russia was targeting their energy infrastructure before now they're hitting their munitions depots. Like it's, it's getting up there. It, it's climbing, it's climbing. The escalation is climbing. And eventually you're going to see potentially 
Ukrainian barracks and other military installations getting hit head-on by these missiles instead of every now and then the Russians send a missile flying their way and focus instead on the lesser populated areas like railroad junctions and uh, ports and supply depots. and We're seeing the escalation. They, the Russians went from hitting energy infrastructure to now they're hitting uh, ammunition dumps. It's not a good time for Ukraine to be taking these kinds of losses. This is a huge blow. Because again, they're low on everything. They're low on everything. So to be low on everything and then to have what you have left getting blown up piece by piece by single missile strikes, that's not a winning uh, formula. I was going to say a winning strategy, but they didn't strategize on getting hit like this. That's not a winning recipe. But something else uh, that got hit, aside from just the ammunition, is going to be making the rounds right now, at least among those who are honest in talking about this situation here. And that is that Britain, we talked about this uh, last episode, I believe, when we talked about those storm shadow long-range missiles that they were providing Ukraine, because that wasn't the only thing they were providing them. They were providing them with these depleted uranium uh, shells, these depleted uranium uh, and apparently it's more than just tank shells. You're talking bullets. These really high caliber bullets, but bullets. And in the blast, I believe at least at Kmelnitsky, but perhaps at Pavlograd uh, as well, you had some of these depleted uranium shells getting caught up in the blast, being blown up and turned to dust. And now that... The bla- and that the blast is over and the dust has begun to settle because these depleted uranium shells got hit and were caught up in that explosion. Now you've contaminated the air and the water because the dust kicked up by the explosion is it's carrying uranium on it. And now it is expected to ruin this year's harvest in Ukraine which is going to poison people, no matter how much. Because people, there, there are going to be attempts to try to get around it. They'll go, oh, this part of the field is a little bit more safe than that one, so we're going to dispose of the, that food and keep this alive. It, it's going to make it everywhere. It's going to make it just about everywhere. And some people will be able to eat the food with little to few difficulties, little to no difficulties, and other people are just going to get poisoned. It's going to ruin this year's harvest in Ukraine, which was already going to be uh, smaller than last year's because they're missing a large portion of their country. It, and the dust is not just going to affect Ukraine. It's going to have lingering effects in other Eastern European countries as well because it's going to spread to those other European countries. So we're looking at thousands, if not tens or even hundreds of thousands, perhaps 100,000 plus people who are going to be either poisoned or harmed in some way by this contamination of Ukraine's air, their food, and their water, all because the the British decided it was a good idea to send depleted uranium uh, shells to Ukraine. And then those shells got blown up because they were put in, in an ammunition depot. 
which was a legitimate target for the war. Thousands of people are going to be poisoned because of this. Now, Ukraine says that it's going to postpone its offensive again, but it is, it's being put under increasing pressure to start the offensive. So they, they've delayed it again, but Zelensky has been forced to give a, a date. So we're looking at sometime in June now that this offensive is going to begin, uh, assuming it doesn't get delayed again. But we... I can completely see why they would postpone the offensive. If your ammunition, if the ammunition you have to use for that offensive is now being targeted, well, how can you conduct your offensive with no ammunition? As if the ammunition situation in Ukraine wasn't already getting bad, now with the, the little that you have left is being blown up. What offensive is there for you to have? What offensive are you going to carry out with sticks and stones? But Ukraine's ammunition stores just shrink yet further. And they're still being pressured to go for this offensive, which is going to destroy them. Make no mistake. It's going to destroy them. That, that's why no one wants to be involved in this. That's why you're, you're hearing rumors of Sersky and Zeluzhny being injured on the battlefield when they, they've been perfectly fine this entire time. And now all of a sudden they're both in critical condition at the same time, right as this uh, counteroffensive is supposed to be starting up sometime soon. Yeah. Zelensky's out of the country. <laughs> it's uh, sometimes the, the the politicking in Ukraine is a bit comedic to watch, but everyone in Ukraine knows that this isn't going to end well for them. Uh, they they simul it's it's a bit of a cognitive dissonance thing where they believe that they're going to march all the way to Crimea, they're going to get to the the Sea of Azov, they're going to kick Russia out, and then they're going to do this grand sweeping maneuver where they're going to and they they believe that, but at the same time they they understand they're going to be absolutely destroyed. And so no one wants to be a part of it. They, they want the great counteroffensive to happen, but they don't want to be responsible for it because they understand it's going to be a disaster. If I was in their shoes, I wouldn't want to be anywhere near this shit either. I would be, oh, uh, look, we I'm going to micro, I'm going to manage the air defense systems in the capital because when we begin our great counteroffensive, it's, it, I expect that the Russians are going to attack us. So, you know, we need to shore up our air defense in the capital so that none of us get hit. You don't want to be hit with a missile, do you, uh, Mr. Z Mr. President? Okay, go. Oh, well, I'll take care of that defense, and I'll leave the plan to you guys. I'd be trying to get away from it, too. <laughs> I'd be going on world tours, too. I'd be, I'm going on a trip to Poland. Hey, oh, you're going to France. I'm going to France with you. You you need a bodyguard. I have to be there with you. I don't know. Are you, are you going to the UK? You're going to Japan? Oh, okay, oh, I'm, I'm right there with you. Oh, would, would you look at that? I, I, I have to take a detour to uh, the United States, and I'm going to be there. I don't know how long I'm going to be there. You know, I, I, it could be a day. It could be a week. It could be a, a few months. You, you know, as a matter of fact, don't don't wait on me, okay? Just you. <laughs> I, I'd be trying to get away from this thing, too. It's going to ruin them. It's going to destroy everything they have left. There will be nothing left when this offensive fails. If they, if they started and then... They are met with losses, and then they try to continue this. Because if they start it, they meet losses and resistance, and then they stop it uh, after just a few weeks, then maybe the losses won't be that bad. But I don't know if they're going to do that. I don't know if they're going to do that. If they go for like two weeks of this offensive, and then they stop and say, hey, look, we, we captured this ground here. We the Russians were more dug in than we thought they were. We need more weapons. Maybe they'll do that. 
that would be the smart thing to do. I still don't like giving them money and weapons, but if you're if we're going to put ourselves in Ukraine's shoes, that would be the smart thing to do if you're not going to negotiate for peace, which would be the smarter thing to do. But if you're, if you're going to go for the war, you can at least uh, pretend that you're doing the offensive and then say, oh, look, they're, they're more dug in. We need more weapons. So you don't kill yourself. You If you go for this offensive and you commit all the way, you're going to die. So I I wouldn't want to be doing this thing either. I have I have no envy for the people who is who are going to be responsible for this thing that everyone knows is going to fail. Someone's going to take the fall, and no one wants to take the fall. Everyone knows that someone's going to take the fall, but no one wants to take the fall. It's it, it's comedic to watch, and then you realize that this is these are people's lives you're playing with. So while I I can laugh it up over here on on. Uh, my side of the ocean over here. Uh, at the same time, it is tragic. You know, if you don't laugh, you just might cry, or at the very least, you'll be deeply disturbed by what you're watching. But contamination from these shells, an exacerbation of an already terrible ammunition situation, a, a counteroffensive being delayed. That's if it ever begins, is going to be the death knell of Ukraine itself, which is a strange irony that your offensive means that you're going to die. And, and it just, again, I can't help but go back to what I said earlier that Russia is about to gain. And I said this uh, at the very beginning of the, the show, Russia is about to score this massive strategic victory over NATO. That's what it looks like. Russia is going to score a absolutely massive strategic victory over NATO because all this means, with, with these ammunition depots being destroyed, and with this the Russians grinding Ukraine down in Bakhmut, which has not just killed people, but destroyed equipment, and with this talk of a Ukrainian counteroffensive beginning that's going to be destroyed, and with the amount of artillery shells and air defense missiles that Ukraine had running out or incredibly low, all that is NATO equipment. All that translates to more NATO equipment being destroyed without Russia ever even having to fight NATO directly. In fact, they didn't even have to encounter that equipment on the battlefield. If we're, if we're talking about the weapons that were in this ammunition depot, they just blew it up. They just blew it up. They didn't even have to encounter that Patriot missile battery. They just blew it up before the Ukrainians could use it somewhere else. They, they didn't have to have their planes get shot out in the sky by those 30 missiles that that battery fired in two minutes. They just blew up the battery, and it still wasted 30 missiles. Whew, that, that's a bullet, a bullet dodged, almost literally. It's a missile, but shoot. We dodged that one. All this NATO equipment being destroyed, and Russia hasn't had to lift a finger against NATO itself. The result? Ukraine is no longer going to be able to offer meaningful resistance to Russian airstrikes. And in time, they won't be able to offer meaningful resistance to the Russian land forces either. At this rate, there won't be a Ukrainian army by Halloween. Not one that's effective. And, and we talked about Ukraine having run out of air defense missiles. But as time goes on, we can see more and more clearly the consequence of that. They're just being hit more and more and more from the air in places that hurt. And I can't help but feel that we're eventually going to see that same trend start to play out on the ground. And we already see it with the fall of Bakhmut. 
Bachmund as well. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, Bachmund is falling. So we're already starting to see that same trend of them running low on critical ammunition that they need, impacting them in the area with which they used to use that ammunition. They lost their air, their anti-air missiles. Now they're being hammered from the air. They're incredibly low on artillery, and their stores of what they have left are being blown up. Now they're losing more ground on the on land. And with Bakhmut gone, I expect that the pace of movement is likely to accelerate. I expect it's going to accelerate. Now, perhaps we're going to have to wait for the Russians to sit there and weather the storm of this Ukrainian counteroffensive. But once the Russians start to move again, what's going to stop them? Because the Ukrainians don't look like they're, they're gearing up for the Kalyanivka line. And once you get past Kalyanivka, it's a wrap until you get to the Dnieper. And by that point, how many troops is Ukraine going to have left to defend? The Russians can just cross the river wherever the hell they want. And what are they going to do about it with 50,000 men left? I'm exaggerating there. Or am I? Am I exaggerating? I say I'm exaggerating, but what, what if what if we get to that point and the Ukrainians really do only have 50,000 men left? What, what am I going to say then? It's, it's insane, the rates of loss that the Ukrainians are dealing with. It's, and I, I just don't see them making the right moves. I really don't. No, I'm not a, a military strategist. I, I'm not, it's not like I know everything. But given the results of the decisions that they have taken, we can look back retroactively and say, they have a history of making bad decisions. The good decision that they're making right now is in delaying their counteroffensive. But the second they begin that counteroffensive, that good decision goes out the window and is replaced with the bad decision of following through on this counteroffensive, which is going to destroy their force. And I just can't help but feel that in time, Ukraine will not be able to offer meaningful resistance to the Russian land forces. If Ukraine can't protect its ammunition from Russian missiles, then how is it going to protect its troops? How is it going to protect... It's it's command and control sensors. Those could be hit. If the Russians really wanted to, they could just wipe out Ukraine's command and control. Then none of Ukraine's units can communicate with one another. And then the Russians just start rolling across. And from that point, it's a wrap. So we'll, we'll have to see. We'll definitely have to watch and see how Ukraine moves forward from this point. Because at this point, the Russians are just dogging on them. It's, it's almost, I'm almost embarrassed for the Ukrainians that the situation is as bad as it is for them. Like, and the Russians are, are still holding back. The Russians are still holding back. They've only just now started to use their air force. They're holding back. All these hypersonic missiles that they've kept in reserve this entire time are now starting to be deployed and they're just embarrassing. You fired 30 missiles in, in two minutes to stop this missile from coming in and it still hits the target. It's getting bad for the Ukrainians. But now that we've uh, finished up with our talk of Ukraine for now, for now, we'll talk about the Durham report. Now, the Durham report, which came out last week, uh, which is a report from John Durham, the special counsel, who was investigating uh, the origins of the Russia Gate probe 
and a number of other things, but spe specifically pertaining to what we're talking about today, he was investigating the origins of Crossfire Hurricane, which is the name given to the probe of Donald Trump and his potential collusion with Russia. His report, after his investigation, uh, essentially confirms that the Russiagate nonsense was unjustified, which exonerates Trump. He said the FBI had no verified intel when it opened a probe on Trump. He said the Steele dossier, which was used as a primary source for this investigation, which is now discredited. Uh, well, I actually, he didn't say that, but I'm, I'm saying it. <laughs> the Steele dossier, which again was used as the primary source for this investigation, has now been discredited officially by Special Counsel John Durham. He's uh, John Durham, after a three-year-long investigation into the origins of the probe into Donald Trump's alleged collusion with Russia, because his investigation began after Robert Mueller published his report on Trump collusion with Russia, and he said, uh, uh, we can't rule out potential obstruction of Congress. That, that after all, the, all those years of investigating, that, that's the best he had to do. And then he walked off, no consequences, and nobody went to jail. But for whatever reason, I get this this strange feeling that these people who have felt as though they were immune to consequences are about to get consequences. I, I don't know why I get this feeling. I don't know why I feel that it's going to be different this time. But I feel that it will. Perhaps I'll be vindicated on that. Perhaps I won't. But uh, moving on with the... Durham report because it's a very interesting report and it has some very interesting consequences but after a three-year investigation into the origins of the probe into Donald Trump's alleged collusion with Russia John Durham in his report concluded that there was no verified intelligence or evidence to justify the probe <clears throat> excuse me Durham recommended no new criminal charges. Uh, so again, I don't, I don't know why. I feel like some people are going to go to jail over this. But his report does, however, criticize the FBI for using the Steele dossier and relying on evidence from the Clinton campaign throughout this investigation. And John Durham is going to be testifying before Congress in a, in a short while. So perhaps we'll cover what he says when he does that as well. And maybe he'll do something. Maybe Congress will put forth some in new investigation into, you know, other collusions of the other side, potentially. You know, there, there is a whole lot of China phobia. So we'll see. But, uh, yes, he criticized the FBI for using the Steele dossier and evidence from the Clinton campaign. So that's a conflict of interest. You're going to rely on evidence from the political party accusing their political opposition of colluding with a foreign country. And you're going to rely on that? That is that is a conflict of interest. His report also reads, quote, based on the review of Crossfire Hurricane, again, that's the investigation into Trump's collusion with Russia, uh, based on the review of Crossfire Hurricane and related intelligence activities, we conclude that the department uh, and the FBI, that's the Department of Justice, the department and the FBI failed to uphold their important mission of strict fidelity to the law in connection with certain events and activities described in this report, end quote. So, Crossfire Hurricane was based on nothing. Nothing concrete. It was There was no intelligence 
no intelligence, no no other related activities that could have justified this investigation. Nothing. And yet they did it anyway. So again, let me repeat that because that, that's really big. Based on the review of Crossfire Hurricane and related intelligence activities, we conclude that the department and the FBI failed to uphold their important mission of strict fatality to the law in connection with certain events and activities described in this report, end quote. Translation, a department meant to pursue impartial justice and an agency that specializes in investigations failed to deliver impartial justice because the case they pursued was based on said investigation and said in oh, the said investigation agency relying on information that wasn't real which was itself provided to them by a source who was not impartial, whom they did not bother to investigate. That, uh, bruh. <laughs> My goodness. It, that, that's just wild. That's just wild. A department meant to pursue impartial justice and an agency that specializes in investigations, they failed to deliver impartial justice because the case they pursue was based on that investigation agency relying on information that isn't real, <laughs> which was provided to them by a source that was not impartial, whom they did not bother to investigate. So neither of them did their job. Neither of them did their job. So what's the purpose of these agencies? If you're, if you're just going to ignore your job when it's convenient for you, if you're just going to not do it and only do what you want to do, that's not how this works. Should I? I can't wait till Trump comes back and cleans house and gets these people up out of here. But Trump, his claim that the Obama administration interfered with the election to thwart him now gains strength because it was the Obama administration that began the Crossfire Hurricane investigation. Obama signed off on it. With, with the findings of this report, his claim that they interfered in his election, that they spied on his campaign, it is legit. It's it's it gained strength. It was legit a while ago, but it now gains even more strength, especially now that CNN has to come out and admit that Russiagate was an illegitimate investigation based on faulty evidence. And this was after holding the claim of Trump colluding with Russia, colluding with Russia over everyone's head for the past, uh, what, eight years now? So this is a huge blow to the claims that Russia was, uh, to the claims that Trump was a Russian agent. Uh, but that's not the only thing that Trump gained with this victory. Trump's disputing of the 2020 election gained strength with this as well. Yes, this finding from the Durham report exonerates him from claims made against him during the 2016 election. Yes, I know. But with election interference being made so very public, the election interference carried out by the intelligence agencies and by the Department of Justice, with that being made so very public by the Hunter Biden laptop story, the Mar-a-Lago raid, uh, the, the Twitter files, and which showed how big tech and government were colluding to interfere with the election. And now the Durham report 
exonerating him from the Crossfire Hurricane investigation, and in fact, essentially uh, indicting the Crossfire Hurricane for illegitimate investigation practices. With all that coming together, all that coming together, and you not just seeing that there is election interference, but people being made aware of the ways in which the elections were and perhaps still are being interfered with. All that comes together. It's not just going to be contained in the 2016 election. I do not feel that it will. Because if election interference is on the table and people know that it's there and they know how it is being done and they know who is doing it and to whom they are doing it, well, then that opens the door to real investigations into 2020 again which would be investigations into Trump's bigger claim, which is election fraud. Because if election interference is real, and we know who did it, what they did, how they did it, and who they did it to, well, is it really a conspiracy theory that there was election fraud in 2020? As a matter of fact, who, who's telling us that it's a conspiracy theory? Who, who is telling us it's a conspiracy theory? My, oh my goodness, my voice is it's, it's going out. <laughs> I got to wrap this up. But who's telling us it's a conspiracy theory? Oh, it's all of the same people responsible for the election interference. Hmm. I tell you, I've had to wait for this one, but this vindication might just be as satisfying as, well, having to wait for Russia to win the war in Ukraine. But we will wait and see. Because that, my lovely listeners is all that I've got for you today. Ooh, it's been a pretty long episode. I had a lot to talk about. But I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing. Some people don't want to adjust to it, and by some people I'm talking about the G7. But regardless of that, we will have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So until we meet again next Monday, servus.